let's recap. We've been looking at the whole area of salvation, what I have called past, present and future salvation. We've seen that salvation covers these three areas, that firstly, past salvation is to be delivered from the penalty of sin. Present salvation is to be delivered from the power of sin. And future salvation, which we begin to move on to tonight, is to be delivered from the presence of sin. And you'll remember that the words, the technical words that I've shown you from the Bible is that past salvation from the penalty of sin is what the Bible calls justification. Present salvation from the power of sin is sanctification. And then future salvation from the presence of sin, glorification. And this is where we begin tonight. But notice as well that I've said that past salvation from the penalty of sin was by Jesus' death. Present salvation from the power of sin is by Jesus' resurrection, because he's alive. But future salvation from the presence of sin is going to be through Jesus' return. So we move on to now <coughs> the third phase of this series and what the Bible calls glorification and what I call future salvation, deliverance from the presence of sin. But let's first of all have a look at the terminology. Go first of all to Romans 5. And I'm going to speed it up tonight because we've got a lot to get through. Romans 5 verse 2, let's just find the terminology. <coughs> through him, that's Jesus, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in our hope, now therefore that makes it future tense, our hope of sharing the glory of God, glorification. Go to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. Paul says, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us, preparing for us, future, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And if you go to Colossians, Colossians 1 verse 27, and Paul says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now then, I'm going to show you that it's so definite in the Bible that we are going to attain this, that at one place Paul actually speaks of it in the past tense. If you go to Romans 8, and I'll show you how utterly convinced Paul is that every Christian is going to be eventually glorified. And in Romans 8 verse 30, and it says, And those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. There's past salvation. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And Paul is so certain, the Bible is so sure, that even though us being glorified remains in the future, the Bible puts it as if it's in the past tense and already done. It's that certain. And what I want to show you is that being glorified, we as Christians, when we are glorified, it is going to be when Jesus returns and it is going to be through a vision of Jesus in all his glory. Go to 1 John. 1 John 3 and verse 2. 1 John 3 verse 2. And this, in a definite way, outlines where we're going to be going now in this series. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, because salvation isn't finished yet. There's future salvation. It does not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, there you are, the return of Jesus, when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? For we shall see him as he is. And if you go to 1 Peter... If you get lost, don't worry, I'll be reading all these scriptures, but uh, I, I do have to motor tonight, there's a lot to get through. 1 Peter 5 verse 4, and Peter says, And when the chief shepherd is manifested, Jesus' return, you will obtain the unfading crown of glory. 
So our future salvation is that one day we're going to be glorified, and this is going to be when Jesus returns, and then we are going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. Now, what we've got to do today is begin this third phase, future salvation, with looking at death and what lies beyond death. So in some ways, what happens when you die? And we're going to be looking at our future when we die, but also we're going to be seeing the state of unbelievers as well. Now tonight is not going to be total information, because the next two or three are going to be filling in the details. We can't cover tonight. But anyway, what does the Bible say happens when people die? Now I'm going to give you now a list of words that we're going to cover tonight. They may baffle you, but they will not later on this evening. Now I'm just going to read through the list and we're going to knock each one on the head tonight. Hell, Sheol, Hades, Tartarus, the Abyss, the Bottomless Pit, Abraham's Bosom, Paradise, Gehenna, the Lake of Fire and Heaven. Have you got that? Now, we're going to cover all those things and to see exactly what the Bible teaches about it all. Now, the first thing, forget hell. Throw that word away. It's not a scriptural word. It's a very unhelpful word. In actual fact, it's simply an English transliteration of the Hebrew word Sheol, which we're going to see in a few moments. But it's a blanket translation used by the translators in the New Testament. And I'm going to show you in this study that every time you get hell in your Bible, there's a footnote that gives you the proper Greek word for it. Now, we're going to be looking at the proper Greek words and the various places involved in death and when people die. So throw away hell and every time you get to it in your Bibles, look at the footnotes because that will clarify it for you. Now I'm going to start with Satan and the evil spirits, the fallen angels. Now the final fate, the final destiny of Satan and the evil spirits is the lake of fire. And you'll remember in Matthew 25, verse 41, when sort of Jesus is speaking about the parable of the sheep and the goats, he says to the unbelievers, and we'll be looking at that parable later on in the series, he says to them, depart, you accursed, into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The lake of fire was actually created, not for man at all, but for Satan and the evil spirits. So that is Satan's final end and the demons. And in Revelation verse 10, you can read about when Satan is actually thrown into the lake of fire, and we will be coming on to that in detail um, in a later study. But what we need to understand for the moment is that Satan and the evil spirits are free to roam on the earth. All right, They're, they're doomed, they, they can't avoid their final fate, but they're free to roam on the earth, but with one exception. And I want to show you, all right, there are a group of evil spirits who are not free to roam on the earth, and we need to understand who they are and where they are in order for us to understand this subject of death. Now, if you go to the second epistle of Peter, and to Peter, <coughs> and chapter 2, you'll immediately see an example of what I've said about hell. 2 Peter, chapter 2, and verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and in your Bible you've got a little note there, haven't you? Mm. And if you look at the bottom, it says Greek Tartarus. Mm, you see, yeah. throw hell away. Wrong word. Totally the wrong word. For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, etc., etc., we'll be back to that. But just for the moment, note, oh, no, I'll, I'll read on. And if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. Now, just hold on to the fact that when Peter talks about these evil spirits who were cast into Tartarus, just remember the mention of Noah's flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in order to ascertain who these angels were, if you go to Genesis chapter 6, and I'll show you who this group of demons were and why it was they ended up in Tartarus. Genesis 6, and we're going to read the first four verses. Now this is just prior to the flood. 
And it says, when men began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took to wives such as them as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, he is flesh, but his days shall be 120 years. What that means is the flood happened 120 years after this. You can actually calculate it. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Now, what we've got here, the sons of God, all right, they take women to be their wives and they have a sexual relationship with them and they procreate offspring. Now, what I've got to demonstrate to you is that in this passage, the sons of God does not refer to people. Now, how can I demonstrate that? First of all, go to the book of Job. Remember that the Bible interprets itself. All the phraseology, all the symbolism in the Bible is explained elsewhere in the Bible. And what I'm going to show you is that in the Old Testament, the sons of God was the term given for angels. And remember, evil spirits are angels. Job 1 verse 6. Now there came a day when the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said, Where have you come from? Satan answered, Lord, from going to and fro on the earth. Here Satan presents himself to God in heaven, and who else is there? The sons of God are there in heaven. It obviously can't be people, can it? And if you go to chapter 38 of Job, chapter 38, and we'll start with verse 4, and this is God trying to show Job how inferior he is to it. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And God is saying, look, I, I am so great compared to you because I actually created the universe. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you at creation? And if you go down into verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, who was there singing at the creation? Well, it wasn't any men or women, was it? It was the angels, the sons of God, the morning stars in the Old Testament are angels. So in fact, what we've got here is that we've got a group of evil spirits who just prior to the flood in the time of Noah actually took on physical bodies and had a sexual relationship with women on the earth. Let's see that more clearly. Go to Jude, the little letter of Jude, which is just before Revelation. Jude, and if you find verse 6 and 7... Start with verse 6. <clears throat> and the angels that did not keep their proper, uh, that did not keep their own position, but left their proper dwelling, have been kept by him in eternal chains in the nether gloom until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise acted immorally and indulged in unnatural lust serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, we've got to understand what this actually means, and we've got to go back to the Greek. First of all, it says the angels that did not keep their own position. Now, that word position, or their first position, is archi. And what it means, uh, it's not God told no, it's an archi archi, it's nothing to do with that. It's, it means the first position of authority. The word means the original condition of something. And what we're going to see here is that these angels, they abrogated the authority they had by virtue of their original states, alright? So what we're going to see is that they changed their original condition into a different one. And it says, but left their proper dwelling. Now we're going to see there's a change of state amongst these evil spirits and the change of state was that they left their proper dwelling now this word dwelling in the Greek is oikaterion and it comes from two other Greek words oikaten which means an inhabitant and oikos which means a dwelling and what the word literally means is a habitation or a house now let's see somewhere else keep your finger in Jude but go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and I'll show you somewhere else in the Bible where this Greek word, translated dwelling, remember that these angels, they left their dwelling, alright? Let's see this Greek word used elsewhere. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 2. Now Paul says, 
We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Here indeed we groan and long to put on our heavenly dwelling. Now there's that word oikotirian, so that by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we sigh with anxiety, not that we will be unclothed, but that we will be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We are always of good courage, this is verse 6, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. There, Paul uses this word, oikotirian, dwelling, when speaking about our body. And that is the meaning of this word. That you live in your body, alright, and Paul's talking about that one day we're going to be clothed with an immortal body. And yet this word, oikotirian, dwelling, he used in, um, in an example when he was speaking of the body. Now, let's put this together. What have we got? The angels did not keep their own position. They changed their fundamental nature. They changed the state in which they existed. And they did that by leaving their proper dwelling. What happened was they left their angelic bodies and swapped them for human bodies. These angels, and we, there's so much about the angelic realm we don't understand because the Bible doesn't tell us. But these particular evil spirits had the power to take on physical form. And this they did. And when they did it, they then became physical and had sex with women and procreated this really weird genetic race. And the giants on the earth were a result of that. And in fact, one of the reasons for the flood was to get rid of that half-caste, half-angel, half-man race that was starting to happen on the earth. So then, these evil spirits, they take on physical form and they have sex with women. Now, that is why... I told you to hang on to the mention of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's used as an example because there it was homosexuality, unnatural lust. And here you've got angels trying to have sex with human beings. Angels are not meant to have sex. Therefore, when these angels took on physical bodies to have sex, it was a similar thing. They went across the forbidden natural barrier to have sex, a sexual relationship which was totally forbidden by God. Now, because of this, because what they did was so very, very wrong, God, in actual fact, chucks them into the nether glue. And it says, being kept by him in eternal chains in the nether glue. And the nether gloom is another word for Tartarus. So here, <coughs> can you see that these angels have been thrown down into Tartarus and they are still there today? Go to Luke 8. Because this, this answers one or two other things. In fact, there's a few things that, through this study that because of knowledge about these evil spirits, we can uh, understand passages that confuse people. First of all, in Luke 8, 31, and here we have a story of Jesus casting out an evil spirit. And in Luke 8, 31, we read this. That, and that, Now, this, these are the evil spirits speaking to Jesus. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a lot of people say, well, when you cast out demons, do you have to cast them anywhere? Well, of course you don't. You cast them out. We are nowhere told in the Bible that you have authority to tell evil spirits where to go. You have authority to tell them to leave somewhere, but you do not have any authority to tell them where they have to go once they leave. Now, the point is that these evil spirits are confronted with Jesus. And why do they say, don't throw us down into the abyss? Because they knew that Jesus could have, if he wanted to, kick them down into Tartarus to join their mates. Can you see? And these evil spirits didn't want that. Now, as it happened, Jesus didn't intend to do it, but the evil spirits didn't know that. And they begged him not to throw them, throw them into Tartarus, but Jesus wasn't planning to in any case, so it didn't matter. So there you've got that, you know, these evil spirits saying, you know, don't throw us down into the abyss, and that abyss that's mentioned there is, in fact, Tartarus, as we've already seen. Now then, Go to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. And we can learn something else now. And in Revelation 20, 
And this is right at the end of the tribulation, all right, at the second coming and the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, I want you, we just saw the evil spirit in Luke 8 saying, don't, don't throw us down into the abyss. The Greek word for abyss is abusos. Now, in Revelation chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him in the pit. So during the thousand year reign of Christ, Satan is going to be locked up. Where is he going to be locked up? In the bottomless pit. What's the, what's the Greek word translated bottomless pit? It's abusos, the same word as abyss. It's Tartarus. The bottomless pit of Revelation is Tartarus. All right. Now, also, if you go to Revelation chapter 9, and this is a real super fast look at this, halfway through the tribulation, in Revelation chapter 9, you have an angel who's given the key to the bottomless pit, and he unlocks it, and all these terrible, grotesque creatures come out. Halfway through the great tribulation, these demons who are at present still in Tartarus and have been there since their sin before the flood, they are going to be released onto the earth to torment and torture men and women. Now that gives you, an, hence the incredible descriptions of them. Remember these demons, their power was that they could transmute themselves into physical existence. They have control over the matter of which they're made up. I mean, this is something out of a horror story. It's really something out of a horror story. But that is the bottomless pit, Tartarus. Okay, right, let's leave them for a moment, Tartarus and the evil spirits there. Uh, we'll be back to them later, but let's move on and look now at Sheol and Hades. Now then, first of all, Sheol. Sheol is where the word hell comes from. Sheol is a Hebrew word, and hell is simply the transliteration of it. All right? Now, Sheol is a Greek word, is a Hebrew word, and it was their word for the place of the departed dead. Hades is a Greek word, and is simply the Greek word for the place of the departed dead. All right? So Sheol and Hades are the same place. It's just the place of the dead. Sheol is the Hebrew word. Hades is the Greek word. Now, let's go through the Old Testament and see what we can learn about Sheol. All right? First of all, the place of the dead, because the Hebrew, the Old Testament is Hebrew, so we're interested in the Hebrew word. Go to Psalm. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Sorry, Psalm 9, verse 17. And it says this. <coughs> the wicked shall depart to Sheol. The wicked shall depart to Sheol. Now what that tells us there is that unbelievers, in the Old Testament times, when unbelievers died, they went to Sheol, the place of the departed dead. Alright? Now go to Genesis 37. <coughs> And in verse 34, and this is Jacob when he is under the impression that, the, that, that, that his sons have killed Joseph. They hadn't, in fact, but Jacob thought that they had. And in verse 35, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. That tells us that believers in the Old Testament went down to Sheol as well. It wasn't just for unbelievers, it was for believers as well. So thus far, in regards to what happens when you die, in regards to men and women, we've seen in the Old Testament the Hebrew word for the place of the dead was Sheol. And unbelievers went there, and believers went there as well. Now then, where is it? Where is Sheol? Well, same place as Tartarus. It's in the centre of the earth. Go to Numbers. An amazing story in Numbers. Numbers chapter 16. And this was a particular bloke and his family who got judged by God. We're not interested in the reasons. But Numbers 16. And if you find verse 31. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split asunder, 
And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all their men that belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them. Sheol is at the centre of the earth. And if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel and 28. We've looked at this story earlier on in the course, and it's when uh, Saul tries to, you know, sort of get the witch of Endor to, to sort of conjure up Samuel, uh, and Samuel does appear, and in verse 14, the witch says, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And then in verse 15, Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me in bringing me up? Because Samuel came up from Sheol, Sheol was down in the centre of the earth. Right, so there's Sheol, the place of the departed dead, the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word Sheol, and we've seen that unbelievers and believers went there, alright, and that it was at the centre of the earth, the same as Tartarus was. Let's move on now to Hades. Hades, which is the Greek word. Matthew 11, let's actually see, see Jesus using the word so that you can see that it is a biblical word, Matthew 11, and if you find verse <coughs> verse 23, and this is Jesus speaking, and you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Alright, so here's Jesus using uh, the Greek word Hades, and it means the place of the dead. Alright, it's simply the Greek word, Sheol is the Hebrew word. Now, we've got to understand now is this. In the Bible, the revelation, the information it contains is progressive. And as you go through the Bible, and remember the Bible was compiled over many, many years, alright? But as you go through it, you get more and more little bits of detail. So that when we get to the New Testament, many, many things that, that aren't that clear in the Old Testament become absolutely clear. It keeps unfolding. And what we can do now is to look at the New Testament and to see the added details that it adds to all these things that we have been looking at. Now, first of all, go to Luke 16. And we're going to look at the parable that Jesus told him about the rich man who died and the beggar who died. All right. Now, <clears throat> what we've got here is, uh, let's read it from verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, etc. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. All right. So he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water, etc., etc. Then if you go down, and... Um, now, where's the bit? Yeah, verse 26. This is Abraham speaking. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who will pass from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross from there to us. Now, then, what we've got here is this. We're dealing with a parable, and a lot of Christians are very fast to say this is not a literal story, it's a parable, it's just symbolic. But what you must understand about a parable is that when Jesus tells a parable, it is perfectly true that, um, that the events may be fictional. But the surroundings, the settings of those fictional events are literal. Take the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, the Good Samaritan may or may not have been an actual character. Jesus might have made him up. He might have been real. Jesus might have made him up. But even if he made him up and it wasn't a literally true story, can you see the road is literal? Bandits who beat you over the head are literal. When you take a beaten man to an inn, you take him to a literal inn. So even if this story is not literally true, in the sense it's a parable, the point is that all the details given are literally true. So we're not dealing with symbolism here, we're dealing with literal facts that Jesus is giving us. Now, let's put it together and see what we've got. Now, then, first of all, the poor man was a believer. And he died, alright, 
And he went, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, Abraham's bosom is a Jewish idiom, and they used it for the place of the dead. It was a Jewish idiom, if you like, for Sheol. Now, you've got to understand where the name came from. <coughs> when the Jews had meals, they didn't sit at a table like we had. Their tables were low and they reclined. Now, if you had, you know, sort of like people who got together who were really close, that if, if you had like two men who were really close, real good friends, that one of them would lie with his head in the other's chest. Now, do you remember in John's Gospel that John himself at the Last Supper, he was reclining and he had his head on Jesus' bosom, all right? Now, that simply symbolised to the Jews friendship and fellowship. Can you see that? So, Abraham's bosom was used as the place for the dead where believers went because it represented uh, rest, it represented peace, it represented love and fellowship, fulfilment and safety. So the plate, we're now going to see that, that Sheol, this place of the dead, has different compartments. The believer, this poor man, went to the believer's compartment called Abraham's bosom and it was a place of absolute beauty, peace, rest, and enjoyment, Abraham's bosom, that's what the idiom means, close fellowship. Why? Because we are the friends of Jesus, because we are believers. But why did they call it Abraham's bosom? Well, Abraham was the father of faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. As simple as that. And notice as well that this poor man who was a believer, he was carried there by the angels. Alright? So then, he went down into the believer's compartment, carried by the angels. However, the rich man was an unbeliever. Now, what happened to him? Well, he was dead, he was buried, he was in torment in Hades. And what I want you to understand now is that the New Testament uses the term Hades not as an all-encompassing term, but the word Hades in the New Testament is the specific name for the unbeliever's compartment in the place of the dead at the centre of the earth. All right? And he is immediately in torment. All right? So he is immediately down in Hades, this unbeliever's compartment in the centre of the earth. And whereas he's dead and hasn't got a body, all right, it's obviously clear that even before we get glorified bodies, there is a kind of... Well, I mean, the, the obviously spirit existence is in some way physical, in a way we don't understand. But he is literally in torment with literal flames. All right? They could burn him. And there's a great chasm between the compartment that he is in and the compartment that Abraham is in with all the believers. So then, what we've got so far is this. There are two compartments, at least, in the centre of the earth. In fact, there are three, because we've already seen Tartarus. There's Tartarus, where those demons are, there is the believer's compartment, and there is the unbeliever's compartment. Alright? Now then, let's move on and to see, in actual fact, that the believer's compartment has got another name in the Bible, and it was Jesus who told us what it is. We've seen it was called Abraham's bosom, and we've seen why it was, but now we get its proper name, and of course Jesus told us what it is. The name is Paradise. Do you remember when he was on the cross with the thief? The thief got saved, and Jesus said, Today you will be with me in Paradise, all right. And it's interesting, this word paradise, because it's a Persian word. And do you, do you know what it means, paradise? It means a, a walled garden. Now, just bear in mind the Garden of Eden. Have you ever wondered where the Garden of Eden went? As we go through this study, and I, I, I'm convinced of this, I've never heard anyone else say it, but I'm convinced of this. As we go through this study, you see, if my little theory is correct, that when Adam and Eve fell... The Garden of Eden was transferred into the centre of the earth, became the believer's compartment, alright? And we're going to later on discover where it is now. So paradise, I put it to you, is in fact the Garden of Eden. Anyway, let's, let's move on. Let's actually just see Jesus saying that, Luke 23. And this is the thief on the cross. We'll read from verse 39. Luke 23, verse 39. Um... No, let's just read verse 43. And, and he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today 
you will be with me in paradise. Alright? So there you have it. Now then, what I want to do is to give you a biblical definition of what death actually is, because there's confusion about this. You need to understand that biblically, death occurs when the spirit leaves the body. Now, this is um, a little bit of recap. We've done this earlier, but remember, we've seen that the truth about men and women is that we have a body, we have an impersonal spirit, but we are a soul. You are not a spirit. You have a spirit, but you are a soul. So we have a body, we have a spirit, which is impersonal, <coughs> but we are a soul. Now then, what happens at death is that your body goes into the grave. Your soul, which is the real you, all right, the real you goes down into the place of the dead, into the appropriate compartment. If you're a believer, into paradise, or Abraham's bosom. If you're an unbeliever, into the unbeliever's compartment, or Hades, as the Bible calls it. So your body, you lose that, back into the ground, or whatever, in the grave. You, your soul, down into the centre of the earth, all right, or, or to the place of the dead. And uh, But what about your spirit? What happens to your spirit? Where does that go? Well, we had the answer. If I didn't have the answer, I wouldn't have asked the question, would I? <laughs> go, go to Ecclesiastes. One of the... Ev Everyone likes to appear clever, and one of, the re one of the ways to do it, never raise a question you don't know the answer to. It, it works, believe me. Go to Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, chapter 12, and we want verse 7. Now, verses 1 to 7 is talking about death drawing near. The context is, is actually dying. And it says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Alright? So then, what I'm saying is that death occurs when your spirit leaves your body and is returned to God, alright, impersonal. You go to the place of the dead, whichever one you are destined for, depending whether you're saved or not saved, and your body goes into the ground. Therefore, what happened when Jesus died? Well, we would expect to see that his body went into the grave, alright, he went to paradise, and his spirit went back to God in heaven. Is that what happened? Well, we know Jesus' body went into the grave, don't we? Yes. We know that he went to paradise. Yes, he said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. But what about his spirit? Well, well, well. Go to John. John 19. John 19. Remember, Jesus was a man. So whatever happened to Jesus is going to be the same as what happens to other people when they die. First of all, John 19, verse 30. <coughs> And this is Jesus on the cross. And he said, when Jesus had finished the, vid the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now that's when he died. And he died when he gave up his spirit. Death is when the spirit leaves the body. All right? Where did his spirit go? Go to Luke 23. If what I've said is right, when you die, your spirit goes back to God in heaven. Because remember, the spirit, the human spirit is impersonal. All right, it's absolutely impersonal. Luke 23, verse 46, again Jesus dying on the cross. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And his spirit went back to heaven. Can you see? So, human death is when the spirit leaves the body and it goes back to God. The body goes into the grave and the soul, the real person, goes to whatever compartment in the place of the dead that they are destined for, depending on whether or not they have believed on Jesus and the saved. Let me say something now, very quickly, about these near-death experiences. You know these people who die on the operating theatre and come back and, you know, they, they go down these tunnels and they see all these lovely gardens and, and this light and they think, oh, it's Jesus and all the Indians think it's Buddha and, and things like that, don't they? Well, we, we need to understand what this is because what you have to understand is that those people do not die. They may be medically dead, but they are not actually dead. Can you see? Now, most of the time, medical death and actual death happen together. Like, if you get your head chopped off, I mean medical death and <laughs> biblical death, there's no question of getting them mixed up. But sometimes, when you get people so-called so dying after heart attacks and coming back from the dead, they not are, they're not actually dead. All right. They might be medically dead, but they are still alive. Go to Hebrews. Goes ahead. It's vitally important, even on medical matters, the Bible is the final authority in absolutely everything. And in Hebrews 9, 
Hebrews 9, 27, we have this. And it is appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. Now, with the exception of a raising from the dead in Jesus' name. Now, there are people raised from the dead in the name of Jesus. They are literally dead, and they are brought back to life by a miracle in the name of Jesus. But apart from those definite exceptions, you only die once. Therefore, these people don't die and come back. You only die once. Death, all right, apart from a raising from the dead in the name of Jesus, apart from that, death is irrevocable. It is irreversible. And these near-death experiences that people have, I'm convinced they're a mixture between psychological factors and demonic factors. I think a lot of it, all right, is recapitulation of birth. If you think about it, going down this dark tunnel in the light at the end and you're being forced down, that's what happens to you when you were born, isn't it? <laughs> you see? The now, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus yeah. is the doctor. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's a recapitulation of your birth when you're near death. But the important thing is these people are not dead. And remember, it is totally deceiving people. When you die, you're in paradise or you're in the unbelievers' compartment. There is no interim period. These things that are happening are satanic. They're lulling people into a false sense of security about death. All right, so be clear about that. When someone dies, if they really die, they're either instantly in paradise or they are instantly in the unbelievers' compartment. Right, okay, so then, we've seen, we're up to the death of Jesus, he dies on the cross, and down he goes into paradise, alright, with the thief. Now, what I want to show you is that while he was there in paradise, he visited the demons who were in Tartarus. Remember, the centre of the earth, you've got the paradise, the believer's compartment, Hades, the unbeliever's compartment, and Tartarus, where the demons are. Now, what I want to show you is that Jesus, he was in paradise while he was in the centre of the earth but at one point he zapped over to these demons let's see this go to 1 Peter go to 1 Peter 1 Peter chapter 3 1 Peter chapter 3 let's read verse 18 for Christ also died for sins once for all the righteous and the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. We know from that verse this is talking about Jesus' death all right, for sin on the cross. <coughs> in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark. Noah? Well that rings a bell doesn't it? Now some people say that this is people who were dead getting a second chance. It's not. There is no second chance. But they say here Jesus is preaching to these people. No, it doesn't say Jesus is preaching to them and it doesn't say it's people. All right. First of all, whatever's happening is with spirits. He preached to the spirits in prison. You're not a spirit. You're a soul. Angels are ministering spirits. We are souls. Now it's this word preached which is a little bit um, unfortunate. <laughs> because there are two Greek words which gets trans which get translated preach. The first one is euangelizo, and that's the word we get evangelized from. And it means specifically a communication that's seeking response. A communication that is seeking response. Now in Romans ten, keep, keep your finger in Peter, but in Romans ten, Paul's famous bit about evangelizing and, and sending out preachers. Romans 10 and verse 14, he says, How are men to call upon him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe of him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without a preacher? How can men preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And that word preach is evangelizo. Alright, it specifically means to preach with a view of getting a response. And when you preach the gospel, the good news, you're doing so to get people to respond because you want them to be saved. Right, that's word number one, all right? There's another word in Greek that gets translated preach, and it's caruso, but it means to herald or proclaim. To herald or to proclaim. But the meaning of that word is not what you proclaim. It's nothing to do, sorry, it's nothing to do with any response you might get. It's the importance of the actual proclamation itself. So, evangelizo is always to get a response. Caruso is merely to proclaim. Whether or not you get a response is nothing to do with it. 
It's not to do with response at all. It's meaning the proclamation itself. The town crier, if you like, would be Crusoe. Now, the word here is not evangelizo, it's Crusoe, all right? And it means to proclaim. <coughs> we are not talking here about the evangelization of dead people. There is no second chance. So, Jesus, he's gone and he's proclaiming something to these spirits in prison. What's he proclaiming? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, Satan and all the evil spirits knew that they'd lost. In Colossians it says Jesus made a public spectacle triumphant, triumphing over them in the cross. Satan and the demons knew that when Jesus died on the cross they'd had it. Well, all the demons that is, except the bunch down in Tartarus. I mean, because they weren't there, they were in Tartarus. They, they had no contact with the outside world at all. They didn't know that Jesus had beaten them on the cross. So when Jesus went down into, para into paradise, Satan knew that Jesus had beaten him. The evil spirits who were free knew that Jesus had beaten him, but the bunch down in Tartarus didn't. So do you know what Jesus did, does? He goes over and he tells them. He says, sorry, lads, you've lost. He goes over to Tartarus and he proclaims to them the victory that he has won over them. So can you see that? Well, Jesus is down in the centre of the earth in paradise. He, at one point, he sort of zaps over, all right, into Tartarus to tell the demons there that they were um, actually sort of be uh, beaten and that he'd done it. Let's have a quick look now at the resurrection. Go to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. <coughs> First of all, verse 27. Acts 2, 27. And this is a, an Old Testament <coughs> prophecy being fulfilled. Thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades, place of the dead. You see, the soul. This is saying that, that Jesus, when he died, he wasn't going to be left in the place of the dead. He was going to come back. And can you see soul? There is a person. Thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades. Jesus was not abandoned to the place of the dead because he came alive again. Uh, go down into verse 31. He foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That Jesus' time in the, pla in the place of the dead was, was small. It was three days and three nights. That was all. All right. So then, Jesus dies. Down he goes into paradise, into the believer's compartment. He's there for three days, he's there for three nights. During that three days and three nights, he zaps over into Tartarus and he tells the demons that were there, you know, the ones who got up into tricks in the time of Noah, he zaps over to tell them that they have been beaten, all right. Then Jesus rose again from the dead. Now, we're moving on now to the great change. Now, what could it possibly be? Aren't you excited? <laughs> the great change, we're moving on to it now. That so far... We're up to the resurrection of Jesus. We've seen Jesus rise again from the dead. He's alive. Now then, what have you got? You've got the demons in Tartarus. Sheol, Hades, the place of the dead, has two other compartments. The believer's compartment, paradise or Abraham's bosom, as it's called. All right? And uh, the unbeliever's compartment, which usually in the New Testament is just referred to as Hades. So then, three compartments at the centre of the earth when Jesus rose again from the dead. The demons, one. The unbelievers, one. And the believers, one. Alright. Now then, a great change happened when Jesus ascended back into heaven. Alright. So we've seen death, resurrection. Now we're going to move on and to look at the ascension and what happened then. But, first of all, when did Jesus ascend? When was the ascension? All right, we've got to establish first when Jesus actually ascended. Now then, if you go to John 17, and we did this a couple of studies ago when we were doing the, um, when we were doing, uh, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. John, John 20. John 20, you remember, he, he's raised from the dead and he appears to Mary. John 20, verse 17. She runs up to hug him. And he says, Do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father. Now here, Jesus says, Mary, don't touch me, because I haven't ascended yet. And remember we saw when we did the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the way that Jesus, fulfilling the first fruits, the feast, first, feast of first fruits, <laughs> when he rose again from the dead, he became the wave offering, that, and he couldn't be touched by anyone until he ascended back into heaven. 
But then later on the same day, he was walking around and he was letting people touch him. Jesus ascended immediately that he rose again from the dead. The only thing he stopped for was a quick chat with Mary. All right? So Jesus rose again from the dead, ascended back into heaven, but he just took time for a quick chat with Mary. All right? That was the order of things. So then, the public ascension was 40 days later. But his first ascension was immediately after he rose again from the dead after a few words with Mary. Now then, go to Ephesians 4. And let's see exactly the change that took place when Jesus ascended. Ephesians 4. <coughs> and we're going to start reading from verse 8. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Right, so there again you've got it, that the place of the dead in the centre of the earth. Now this is talking about Jesus ascending and leading a host of captives, all right, having been in the lower parts of the earth for three days and the three nights down in paradise with the quick zappo over to Tartarus. Now then, you've got to understand the picture that Paul uses here, all right. He led, he, he led a host of captives. Paul was writing in a civilization that was run by the Romans. Paul himself was a Roman citizen. He wasn't a Roman himself, but he was an honorary Roman citizen. Paul is using a picture here of one of the things that the Romans did when they engaged in various wars. And one of the things they did, say they went to beat another nation up, okay? They went out, they made war. And when they won the war, all right, and they, they, they marched home, the army marched home to Rome. And when they arrived in Rome, they led this big procession with all the spoils of the warfare. So all their slaves, all the money, it was all paraded into Rome, all right, all the, the slaves, the men who they captured from the other side. And it was known as leading captivity captive, in that sense, that they, they brought home with them the spoils of the warfare. Now this is exactly the picture here that Paul is using. Now then, when Jesus ascended, he went home, didn't he? He came to earth, he waged a war, when he ascended he went home and he led a host of captives. What were the spoils that Jesus came for? What, what is Jesus's prize because he's won the battle? I'll tell you, it's us, it's believers. Believers are the spoils that Jesus has won. So that when Jesus goes back to heaven, do you know what he did? He took all the believers who were in the believers' compartment back home with him. In fact, it's more than that. He didn't just take the people, he took paradise back to heaven. He took the believers' compartment back to heaven with him back home when he ascended. So that then at that point, the believers' compartment was transferred Paradise was transferred from being in the centre of the earth to being in heaven. Alright. So then, that's why now, <coughs> if you die, when a believer's die, you go straight to heaven to be with Jesus. Let's have a look at 2 Corinthians. And sometimes you get all these wretched doctrines about soul sleep and stuff like that. When you die, you sleep until the second coming and then you're, you're woken up and, oh, it's absolute rot. Uh, 2, 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. We were in this passage earlier. Verse 8. We're of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You see, away from the body, dead, at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Can you see... If we die now, you go straight to be with Jesus. Alright. And here, it's interesting, when Paul says, while we are in the body, alright, we are away. But when we're with the Lord, we're at home. When you die, you go home. Jesus went back home to heaven. And what this means is, is this. Heaven is our home, alright. As long as we're down here, I mean, this is strictly an away match. When you die, you're going to be playing at home. Can you see that? So the moment, the moment that you die, you go to be with Jesus. Go to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Can you see? Because the moment you die, 
you go to Jesus in heaven. All right. And remember, how did you get there? Well, how did the poor man get taken to paradise? He was carried there by the angels. When you die, the angels escort you back to be with Jesus. You know, I, mean, I can't see anything to... I mean, I know that, I mean, obviously, there are ties here. Of course there are. But can you see there's no fear of actual death? You are carried by the angels to Jesus in heaven. Now then, remember earlier, I said that it wasn't just that Jesus took all the believers back to heaven. He took paradise back to heaven with him, didn't he? So now... We would expect that any reference to paradise in the Bible that is going to be in heaven. Let's have a look. Go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to read verse 1 and 4. But before we do, you have to understand that in the Bible, there are three different places that the Bible uses the word heaven for. All right? There are three heavens. The Bible teaches there are three heavens. The first heaven is the air. Alright? When Jesus spoke about the birds of the air, in Matthew 6 and verse 26, the birds of the air, he says the birds of the heavens. Now, in the Bible, the air, the, the birds flying and aeroplanes flying, that is the heavens, number one. Now, the second heaven... Alright, and these are all the same Greek word, oranos, it's, it's the same word for heaven. The second heaven is outer space. If you just go to Hebrews, the Greek word is oranos. It's in fact where we get the word Uranus from, the name of that planet. But in Hebrews 11 and verse 12 we read this. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many of the stars of the, as stars of the heavens. Now there's, that's oranos as well. So, Oranus, heaven one, the air, where the birds fly. Oranus number two, outer space, where the stars of the heavens are. Now then, so, what about heaven number three? Alright? 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 4. I must boast, there's nothing to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Well, where's the third heaven? God's heaven where God lives, all right? This is heaven, outside the universe, the third heaven. So Paul is speaking of a time when he actually visited heaven before he died. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. So he says, I don't know whether I went there physically or whether I went there in the spirit. He just doesn't know. But listen to this. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Why? Because paradise is in heaven now. Can you see? So Paul, he had a trip to heaven, and when he got there, paradise was there. Wasn't it? Because when Jesus ascended, he took paradise from under the earth and he took it back to heaven with him. So now, when we die, we go to paradise, but now paradise is in heaven. It's not down in the centre of the earth. And remember what I said as well, that paradise was the Garden of Eden itself. What was in the Garden of Eden? The Tree of Life. And when you read through Revelation, one of the things promised to us as overcomers, as believers, when we die is the, the tree of life. The tree of life is in heaven. And then if you read in Revelation, you'll find there are mentions of the tree of life, and it's in heaven, and it eventually ends up back on earth again, because eventually when God destroys the universe and creates the new heaven and the new earth, heaven lands on earth. Can you see? The Garden of Eden started off in heaven, because it was God's garden. He, he likes gardens. When he created the earth, he put it on earth for man to be in. Isn't that lovely? You know, we were in God's garden. Then after sin, it went down into the centre of the earth, became the believer's compartment. <clears throat> when Jesus ascended, it ended up back in heaven, which was where it started off. But eventually, the new heavens and new earth, it comes back down. You see, the Garden of Eden is paradise, is the believer's compartment. And when we die, that's where we go. So then, up to the ascension, believers went down into paradise, or the Garden of Eden, Abraham's bosom, believer's compartment, call it what you like, it was at the centre of the earth. When Jesus ascended, it went up to heaven with him, Jesus took it home with all the believers in it, and from then on, the moment of the ascension, every believer who dies is carried by the angels, but not to paradise in the centre of the earth, because now it's in heaven. They go straight to be with Jesus. Its location has changed. However, there is no change as yet for the unbelievers' compartment. 
There will be, but we will be seeing that in a future study. So, at the moment, unbelievers, the same right from the beginning of history, unbelievers go down into the unbelievers' compartment and they are in torment in the centre of the earth and will be until the final judgment and we will do that in a later study. Right, okay, only, only Gehenna to go now. Let's, let's do Gehenna. Go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Matthew 5 and verse 22. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, But I say, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Anyone who insults his brother shall be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool shall be liable to the hell of fire. Now you see that naughty word hell? It should not be there. Throw it away. In your Bibles, if you've got hell there, you've got a little note at the bottom. Yes? And it says Gehenna, doesn't it? And what Jesus says here is that lest you end up in the Gehenna of fire. Alright? And if you uh, go over to verse chapter 18, again in Matthew, chapter 18, and in verse 9, Jesus says, It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. There's hell, naughty word, cross it out, little note at the bottom of your Bible, Gehenna of fire. Alright? So here we have Gehenna. Now then, what's Gehenna? Gehenna was the Jewish name for the lake of fire. You see, we've seen there are different names for these various places, like Paradise was Abraham's bosom, you see. Now Gehenna was another name that the Jews used for the lake of fire. And the way that they got this name was interested. It derived from a place called Gehinnom, or what was called the Valley of Tophet. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Valley of Tophet, or Gehinnom, as it was known as, human sacrifices were made to the idol Molech. Alright? And that this idol, what they, it, it had kind of its arms came out, were holding a big pan. And they used to sort of fill the pan with burning coals and a big fire underneath there. And the Canaanites and the Jews did this as well. It was one of the time, you know, the Jews often ended up in idolatry, like the Canaanites, the Jews at times served Molech, and what they did is they came and they threw their babies into the arms of this statue and they were burned alive. And interesting enough, what they used to do while these sacrifices to God Molech were going on, they had drums, and all through the sacrifices they used to beat these drums frantically, and what that did is it drowned out the screams of the little babies who were to, to make it easier for the parents to sacrifice their children. Can you see? And that what happened was that their various times in Israel's history, they did those sacrifices and they did them in Gehinnom. And in actual fact, if you just take, take these 2 Chronicles 28 verses 1 to 4, although we haven't got time to read it, 2 Chronicles 28 verse 1 to 4 and 2 Kings 23 verse 10, you can actually read about those examples of what happened in the valley of Gehinnom. All right. Now, 2 Kings 23 verse 10. Now, what eventually happened, because Josiah eventually put a stop to the practice, it was eventually outlawed, all right? But what they did is that they, they this place where they did um, these sacrifices, Gehinnom, what they eventually did is they made it into um, a kind of a giant refuse tip. And of course there were a lot of you know, executions in the ancient world, you know, sort of crucifixions, execution, etc, etc. And there were loads of crimes that you got killed for. And what they used to do is that they used to dump all the dead bodies of criminals who have been put to death on a big dump in this valley. And all these dead bodies were just thrown there. And they piled up year after year after year. And of course they kept it constantly burning to keep down putrefaction and the risk of disease. So what was happening is that you'd have this big mound of constantly burning human bodies where fresh ones would always be thrown on and that helped protect it from disease. Now can you see Gehinnom, Gehenna, that they took that place, they used that place as a name for the lake of fire. And when we come on to look at the lake of fire, you will see what a tremendously good name it actually is. So there is Gehenna. Let's go through our list again. Hell, you've thrown that one away. You've seen why. Sheol, Old Testament Hebrew, place of the dead. 
Hades, the New Testament he, uh, he, uh, Greek term for the place of the dead, but specifically used for the unbelievers' compartment. Tartarus, the place in the centre of the earth where the angels who took on human shape and had sex during the time of Noah with women, Tartarus, that is where they are chained up. Also known as the Abyss, also known in the Bible as the bottomless pit. <coughs> Remember, halfway through the tribulation, those demons are going to be released onto the surface of the earth. And then at the second coming, during the thousand year reign of Christ, Satan and the demons are chucked back down while Jesus rules on the earth. All right? And then they're let out again just for a little while before the eventual destruction of the universe as we know it. Abraham's bosom, idiom for fellowship, love, peace, absolute fulfillment, Another name for the believer's compartment, which Jesus called paradise. Paradise, a walled garden, I've put it to you, it was the Garden of Eden. Gehenna, the Jewish name for the lake of fire. Heaven, well, we've seen heaven, the home of God. So we've been through that list, we've covered it, we've covered it all. Now then, one last thing. The sinful nature, which we've been seeing all the way through this series, is the real problem, resides in your physical body. Do you remember our study when we were doing um, Romans 6 and it talks about the body of death might be destroyed and all the time and, and, and that the sinful nature is passed on by fathers to their children. Now then the thing is the physical your sinful nature resides in your physical body. So when you die, you lose your physical body, because that's what death is. When you die, you won't have your physical body. Alright? So when you die, your sinful nature is gone. All that's left is the Jesus version of you. Alright? The point being that the moment that you die, you are sinless. You are just like Jesus. You are totally delivered from the presence of sin. Alright? And this is the first one of a series of studies covering these things. In detail. So then, dead believers, where are they? They're in paradise. Haven't got their bodies yet, but they're in paradise with Jesus. Dead unbelievers, they're down in the centre of the earth still in the unbelievers compartment known as Hades. They haven't got any bodies. But, we're not through yet. What happens when you die, death and beyond? Well, we've seen some of it, but you see, all the believers in paradise even though they're having such a marvellous time, they've got a problem. And if you drop dead tonight, even though you'll be with Jesus, you'll have a problem. And the problem is this. You've lost your body. So next week, our subject is I ain't got nobody. <laughs> Join us then, and we will see what happens next.